Please turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible and need to find your way around it, uh, Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm right, right in the middle of the Bible about. You can just open up there. So this is another Psalm of David. Uh, you'll note as we go throughout the Psalms that many are attributed to him. There's 150 total Psalms, 73 uh, are titled by as, as written to David. The first four Psalms that we've gone through are, are pretty straightforward, like linear almost. You could see the section. Psalm 5 is not so much. Um, it's a bit more wandering, if I could say that. I think that's helpful to us. David's suffering here. And when you're suffering, you're not typically thinking linearly. You're, you're, you're all over the place. And David will say something and go somewhere else and then return back and go somewhere else and return back. He's, he's uh, in trouble here. He's hurting. And so he's, he's just a Christian like you and me. And he's teaching you how to go through awful times. He's giving you words. He's providing you an example. We'll also see in verse 9 that Paul uses it in Romans 3 as the apt description of all of mankind by nature. And so in Psalm chapter 5, we have the doctrine of sin uh, in some, the entire biblical teaching of, of, of the doctrine of sin, of the sinfulness of man in Adam here. Uh, and so Psalm 5 is really important in the scriptures to helping us understand sin. And again, it's a prayer. In Luke 11, if I could ask you uh, or maybe instruct you on how to listen to the preaching, after observing Jesus' prayer, that they were watching Jesus actually pray, um, the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Um, so they saw Jesus pray, and the next thing they asked is, can you teach us to do that? Right? They're like any of your children when they see you doing something. Dad, Mom, can you? Uh, and so let's have that kind of a tender, teachable spirit. There's two parts to the preaching of God's Word. I have to preach it, and you have to hear it. Uh, and so may God grant us that kind of teachable spirit this morning. All right, uh, here is Psalm chapter 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies, the Lord abhors the bloodthirst and the deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. There is, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. They have 
because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, may we learn to be more like you, to love what you love and hate what you hate. So may we hate the double-minded, but love your law. You are our hiding place and our shield. Teach us even now to put our hope in you and your word. May all who are evil depart from us, that we may keep your commandments. Uphold us by your promises. Do not let us put, be put to shame. Hold us up that we may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn those who go astray from your statutes. Their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, may you teach us to love your testimonies. Our flesh trembles for fear of you. We are afraid of your judgments. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Psalm 5's structure isn't like we saw in Psalm 4 where there's the discernible parts. It's more like an oval track. It's not a quarter mile straight track. It, it comes in, around again and again. We hear in the first three verses this prayer of David. He's, re, he, he, he's calling on God again to hear his prayer and then he's content to wait. Then he turns to the wicked. He reminds himself of confidence in God because of how God relates to those who hate him. Then again, in verses 7 8, he returns to God and to prayer. Lead me, O God. And this is the center of the, the verse. I, I enter your house, now lead me in your way. According to your righteousness, according to your faithfulness, make my way straight. He again visits in verses uh, 9 and 10 the truth about the wicked and then concludes again with a prayer. So again, a bit more circular here. But he's hurting. He's hurting. He's in trouble. He's angry. He's sorrowful. He's groaning. Um, and so we're learning how to pray here, I think, when we're in trouble. One of the, uh, Pastor Jeff got at it in his children's sermon. There, this is the first psalm where we really meet cursing on the wicked. So we were introduced in Psalm 1 to this clear distinction, as Pastor Jeff said in the children's sermon, between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, Psalm 1, the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but God knows the way of the righteous. There is this clear distinction based on faith and God's Messiah. But in Psalm 5 is the first time that we meet very direct, very hard language um, towards God's enemies. And you sang it. Did that bother you when you sang that? You're saying some really hard things that you've probably never, ever sung before in church. You, you sang of God's hatred of all evildoers. Did that, did you sing it there? I, I wonder, did you? It's hard. We're not used to singing those. We're not used to singing things like that, that, that the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty, that We're saying in verse 10, to make them bear their guilt. And so here we meet doctrine. 
here, here's where we need doctrine to help us. Does God change? Does God change? He doesn't. He does not change. There's nothing new in God. So in the New Testament, we don't meet a different God. He's the same God. At, at the conclusion of our service, I'm going to give you a benediction from Second Thessalonians where Paul seems to be rejoicing in the coming destruction of the wicked. You see in the book of Revelation, a picture of those who have been martyred for the faith, crying out to God, how long, O Lord, till you bring justice on the people who did this? How long, O Lord? So, one of the initial lessons on a kind of 50,000 foot level before we get down into the actual content of this psalm is, why don't we have the same kind of prayer content that David does here? Why may it be uncomfortable for you to read these things? What, why is David able in the middle of great suffering of betrayals and animosity and people trying to harm him, why is David able to pray like this? This is a song to be sung in corporate worship with wind instruments, apparently. This doesn't seem like a flute kind of song to me. I believe David's experience of God in trial is based on his understanding of God. David has a theological depth of knowledge of God that allows him to give voice to what he needs to when he goes through very difficult times. So Pastor Jeff and I meet every Tuesday afternoon. And part of our meeting is we read through the sermon text and then spend some time discussing it. And one of the things that struck me is, as we read through it, we're discussing it, is, man, does David know God here? And I, I do think there is in us sometimes a reluctance to spend the time and energy needed to know the truth of God more so that we might find comfort in God more in significant times of difficulty. Our, if, you, if you want to think of it like a bank account, when, when you're in trouble, you need to go to the account and withdraw funds to help you endure. You need to take something out, but it has to be there for you to have it. I think too many times our bank account has like insufficient funds. We have some change. David's is like piled with gold of truth of God. He knows God. He knows God. He knows the truth of God's hatred of sin. He knows the truth of God's justice against those who refuse repentance. 
He knows of God's welcome of all who repent and turn for their sin and have steadfast love. He, he knows of the nearness of God's love and, and, and the kind of intimate, familial welcome that, that any can have. He knows joy in God because God is a refuge. He knows it because he knows God. He says in verse 2, my king and my God, he knows him. He knows him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Paul exhorts Timothy to keep a close watch on his teaching, to immerse himself in doctrine so that his progress in doctrine can be made known to all. Paul's saying that to a pastor. Pastor, make progress in doctrine. You need more depth of understanding of your God. I think that's true for all of us. Why? Why is it so necessary? Why, why is it so necessary to know theology, to know doctrine? So that when you go through things like this, you have some firm basis, some strength to draw on because you know the nature and the character of God. So helpful. I've used this illustration before and I, I want to use it again. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he fainted in the doctor's office. He, it, it scared him to death. For a couple weeks, he just was frantically trying to find some cure, alternative medicine. It just really wrecked him. And I had just graduated from seminary, and so I was full of myself and full of theological truth. And so I had this big systematic theology. I said, Dad, let's read this together. <laughs> We did. And we read the chapter on justification by faith. And my dad grew up in church his whole entire life. He's a Christian man. But the church failed him in teaching him any depth of knowledge of doctrine. He had nothing firm to stand upon when his life was in jeopardy. But in him understanding more the depth of God's pardoning of our sin and counting us righteous in Christ, it's like everything just settled for him. It was remarkable. But how much better would it have been if he had had that beforehand? That's why this is so important. And then, at the end of this psalm, there is joy in God. That's it. Do you know that that's what you were made for? That you alone, of all the creatures in creation, have been given the capacity to know and enjoy God. You. That's it. No other insect, no other animal, no other plant, you. No stars in the heavens. You and I alone have been given a capacity to know the living, true, eternal, holy creator God and to relate to him, to have relationship with him, to enjoy him. And knowing him more, knowing the truth that he's revealed to us in his word is where that joy comes from. It's drawing near to him in knowing the truth of who he is ultimately is revealed in Jesus Christ. I wanted to start off this psalm by just exhorting you to take the time and spend the energy to grow an understanding of doctrine and theology. To love it because you love God. 
to attend the opportunities given at the church, to take advantage of your own time to, to learn. I want to exhort the men especially here. You are, as Luther said, pastors of your home. You're little shepherds of a little flock or of a wife or in this church. And we need you as men to do the work, to spend the time reading and studying, to grow in your knowledge of the doctrine of God. It's true of women as well. But I find women are often more inclined to do the work necessary to learn doctrine while men are reluctant. And so let's do this. One of the things we will see in the doctrine of God is his hatred of sin in this psalm. His hatred of sin. Let me just read the verses again that speak of God's, how God relates to sin. Verse 4, he does not delight in wickedness. God is a God of delight. He is full of joy. But in, in regards to any wickedness, he has zero delight in it. Now, think about this. When you have a child, a young child, a, maybe a two, three-year-old, and they start finally understanding rebellion against uh, what you're asking them to do. And so many times you think it's cute. Because they're just little and it's so cute when you say no and then they reach out towards it so subtly and they got this little smile and smirk. It's so cute, right? It's not cute. God has no delight in that. He has no regard for it. He hates it. He hates it. Evil may not dwell with him. God is a God of dwelling with. He has eternally dwelt in triune relationship. He created a whole world and populated with people in order to dwell with them. The entire Bible is a story of God dwelling with his people. For him not to dwell with something is totally outside of the intent of it. For him to have refusal to dwell with something is because of an absolute hatred of that thing. He hates it. Evil may not dwell with him. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. We have this little trite saying in Christianity, don't we? Love the sinner and hate the sin. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Does that say that? Who does God hate here? He hates the person. You hate all doers of evil. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Verse 10 or verse 9. There's no truth in their mouth. There's inmost self destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of the transgression, cast them out. Cast them out. So the first place to apply this doctrine of sin in Psalm 5 is to yourself. To have the faith to believe that God hates your sin. He despises it. He despises your and my sin with a holy hatred. It is not cute to him. He doesn't wink at it. He abhors it. 
your sin. He abhors the lusts of your heart. He hates the little lies you tell. He despises your passive aggressiveness. Your greed angers him. He hates our sin. He hates your sin. That's the first place to go with it. Yet, that's not exactly what it's there for. The doctrine of sin in Psalm 5 isn't there to convict us mainly of our sin. I think that's a helpful side of it. The main reason David goes into such depth of this doctrine of sin is to comfort himself. Look at the transition between verses 3 and 4. David just cried out to God in verses 1 and 2. It's, it's as if David had sacrificed in prayer and worship, and now he's just content to watch. Why? For you are not a God who delights in evil. David is in a world with the wicked and the righteous. The wicked torment him. The wicked are a torment to his soul. They're a challenge to him living godly. They, they stand against him and oppose to him. And he turns to God, thinking on the doctrine of God, who God is, and he begins to repeat to himself, remind himself of God's holiness, God's justice, God's hatred of sin for the purpose of comforting and reassuring him and God's good help. So this doctrine of sin and God's hatred of it is meant by David to encourage him, to encourage him. That's what it's for. So verse 10 is where he ends up with it. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of the transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Why doesn't David pray like Jesus did after hanging the cross? God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why doesn't David do that? Do you think David less godly here? Is this like a lower tier of Christianity, this kind of anger against the wicked, and we need to graduate to a higher spiritual place of being like Jesus, and who is always nice and never says a hard word ever against enemies. Jesus is always just kind, and Jesus just always says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus would never, ever, ever say anything like that, right? David, that's the first time you've ever been wrong. Right? Because Jesus wouldn't say this. And that's what we do as Christians, though. Just like Pastor Jeff, we want to tear it apart. This is like unspiritual. This is worldly Christianity or something. We need to graduate to a more spiritual Christianity. We need to only have love, love, love all the time, love. Do you know that this is actually loving? Because do you know what these wicked, lying, rebellious people do? They hurt God's people. They destroy God's people. I think probably the best way to get 
into the frame of mind of how good this is, is to consider working outside an abortion clinic, pleading with mothers and fathers not to go in there and chop their baby into little pieces. And not see doctors who have given an oath to do no harm that do that. And to see their vileness and their, their haughtiness. And to watch that happen. And you're there pleading for the life of that child knowing it's about to happen. This begins to make sense there, maybe, for you. You have police officers bringing them in and protecting them to destroy a human being created in God's image. Make them bear their guilt, O oh God. Bring it on their own heads. Or maybe if you were a Christian in another country that suffered greatly, or maybe whose wife and children were slaughtered by the enemies of God, maybe you could pray this, but not in America because we don't suffer anything for being a Christian. This is spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters. For all of our talk of all the spiritual warfare, this is it. Christ will come at the end of time and make an end of all of his enemies. And Christians are here being discipled to take comfort in that. The day when God removes all the wicked is to be unspeakable comfort for you as a believer. Could also help you if you are here or listening on the live stream and you really do not have faith in Christ. You say you do, but your life doesn't match it. It's really not a life to you. It's just a part of your life. That this is how God relates to those who do not have living faith in Jesus. Ought to scare the hell out of you. If you are here and following God is, is not life for you, It really doesn't impact your life. You don't really have living faith. This is your relationship to God. Do you have any concern for your eternal destiny? I mean, do you have any concern for the life to come? Do you have any concern for your soul before a holy God? That's what this can do for you. This, this ought to wake you up. But I want to that, that all being said, there's the doctrine of sin. I, I want to draw your attention, if I can, to the end of verse 9 in this issue of flattery. I think it's a huge issue in our day. So it's one of those, I know I'm not supposed to say this thing in our culture, one of those white sins. Right? It's, it's one of those sins that's tolerable, respectable. I would go so far as to say that flattery in our culture is defined as love. Unless you're willing to flatter somebody, you don't actually love them. We equate loving someone in our culture with lying to them and saying smooth, oily, slippery things about them that you don't mean at all. <laughs> That's actually the def a definition, a big part of the definition of love today in our culture, flattering people. Is what pastors have to do. 
I mean, a part of the unspoken job description of every pastor is you better learn how to flatter the right people. But do it in a way that they don't ever think you're flattering them. This is what wives expect from their husbands. Sons and daughters expect from their mothers and fathers. Employees expect from their employers. What is flattery? I'm jumping around on this thing. I'm sorry for you pressing the button back there. Better you than me. God is using it for your sanctification, Ian. Flattery is insincere praise or encouragement used to attain something from another, often just favor. That's what flattery is. Flattery is insincere praise or encouragement used to attain something from another, often favor. Do you know how awful the Bible speaks? Proverbs 18.21, I have it, if you can find it, Ian. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I missed that one. Um, let me just give you a few things. Flattery in the Bible, if you want just a good idea, is Judas's kiss. That, that's, that's flattery. It's called smooth, oily speech. It's preachers who tickle ears. Proverbs 12, 2 3 says, God will cut off all flattering tongues. Job 32, 22 says that my maker will take away all flatterers. God hates flattery. Just look at verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open, stinking grave. And what do all of those three things, what is he talking about? Flattery. Flattery is no truth in your mouth. Flattery is an inmost self as destruction. Flattery is your, your throat, your mouth is an open, stinking, rotten grave. That's flattery in the Bible. How do we flatter? I'm going to step on some toes here. Young woman dressing immodestly and all the other women on Facebook tell you how cute she is. That's flattery. It's lying. You're calling something good that's evil. Flattery is men who have another man in their life who has more power, or more money, or more clout. And so you kiss his butt. You say things to him that you don't really mean in order to get him to like you. Because you fear what he thinks more than what you, you fear God. Men and women do this differently. Women, it's often about dress and appearance. Men, it's often about uh, favor and being accepted by somebody who they perceive to be at a higher level of importance or worth or power or wealth or whatever. Another way that we flatter in our day is nobody will ever say anything straight, but we nuance it and couch it in all kinds of languages. That's just what I believe or I think, or you don't have to agree with me, but we just won't say anything straight anymore. We put all these words around it to protect ourselves from anybody thinking that we're actually the ones taking a stand on anything. And so we flatter. And God hates it. 
Now, Psalm 5 is hard, but it's very, very good. I started off the service with Ephesians 2. I didn't, I didn't put it up there on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because even though I maybe don't see it yet, this, this all is being set up for you to find great hope in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, is just like Psalm 5. Ephesians 2 begins with this doctrine of sin, of what we're like by nature apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. Ephesians 1, uh, 2, 2, you follow the course of this world. You follow the prince of the power there. That is, you're the devils. <laughs> you're, devil, you're, you're the devil's spawn. That's what we are. By conception. We live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We're by nature children of wrath. And then you have this glorious turn in verse 4. But. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see that same thing twice in, in Psalm 5. Verses 4, 5, and 6, this unvarnished revelation of God's relationship to the wicked. And then in verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And in Verses 9 and 10, the same thing. There's no truth in their mouth. Make them bear their guilt. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing ever for joy. Spread your protection over them. Let those who love your name exalt in you. For you bless the righteous of the Lord. You cover him with favors with a shield. That's what Psalm does. Five does it. Contemplates God's hatred of sin in order for it to appear all the more glorious, God's love for us in Christ. Look, look at verse 7. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. What, what is the doorway into God's house? It's the abundance of God's steadfast love. What does that mean? What is steadfast love? What it, where do we see the, the fullness of the steadfast love of God? Where, where do we see it? On the cross. You see on the cross God's absolute hatred of sin and God's abundant Saving, forgiving, justifying, adopting, sanctifying, glorifying eternal love in that he sent his son to die in your and my place. And notice, through that steadfast love, we get to enter his house. God is not a stranger. He is my king and my God he is the king of the country to which we belong. You are not treated by God like a salesman. 
who comes to your door that you don't let in your house. You keep him at the door. God, God welcomes you and he doesn't just keep you in the entryway. You get to sit at his table and eat of his food. You get to kick back in one of his recliners and put up your feet. You get to wash in one of his restrooms. He has a bedroom for you, prepared for you. You get to enter his house. You couldn't have any nearer, more intimate relationship with God, even though God hates your sin so much. Do you get it? You will never know the abundance of God's steadfast love for you until you reckon with God's hatred of sin. Those two things come together. The reason you do not feel the worth of God's love like you should is because you have yet to really believe that you are this bad. Right? The reason that Jesus' death on the cross does not seem as precious to you as it might to others is because you do not yet realize how abhorrent you were in your sin to God. Yet when you have faith to believe that you were by nature a child of wrath, then when you read, but God... And his great mercy made you alive together with Christ. That will seem the most precious thing you have in all your life. And then verse 11 can come true for you. Which is joy in God. Do you enjoy God? This is the God who created you, who formed you in your mother's womb. conceived in sin the heart of rebellion against him and yet he came to you and made you alive together with Christ washed you and cleansed you gifted you his son's righteousness secures you gives you everything you need for life and godliness so let all who take refuge in you rejoice this is the capability you and I have that no other being in this world has. To rejoice in God, to sing ever for joy in God, who has spread his protection over you. That those who love his name may exalt in him. Why do we love his name? What is his name? Savior. My kings, my God, it's the name with which you've been named. You were baptized in his name. You bear his name. This is the most important, significant thing about you in a world that's constantly trying to redefine you. You are the fathers. You are the sons. You are the spirits. So, Psalm 5 holds out this distinction. We know that verse 11 will be fully true when Christ returns. Okay? So you do have a choice here in this world. You can enjoy the world. You can laugh now and weep for eternity. Or you can groan now over your own sin and groan now over the state of the world and seek God and have joy then forever. That's it. Let's pray.
Father, may all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let us sing for joy. Spread your protection over us. That those who love your name may exult in you. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. Your love for us is great, O God. Help us to sing for it. And may all who yet hate your name, who yet to turn, come even now. In Jesus' name, amen.